Good morning. It's good to see you on this blustery winter day. As we've been joking this morning, that's what Winnie the Pooh would say. Anyway, it's a blustery day today. Glad that you have made it here this morning safely. And it is our joy and our privilege, as we do every week, to now get to turn our attention to God's Word. We need His help if this time is going to be of any use for any of us. And so let's go to the Lord now in prayer and ask Him for it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray to you as sinners, as people who are far from perfect. And we know that even in coming to you in prayer, we don't come on the basis of our own righteousness, on the basis of our own merit. We come to you because for many in the room, you have shown us grace in your son. You have granted us faith in him. And we have now been counted righteous and we have been pardoned from our sin in him. You are a good and gracious God. And so we ask that you would be good and gracious and merciful to us now as we look to the Bible. We pray that your spirit would come and fill me as the preacher so that I might be of help to these dear people who have gathered here today. And we pray for all of us that your spirit would fill us so that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that would love you and love your truth. Father, this letter that we're going to start on today is about assurance, about knowing that we have eternal life in Christ. And so our prayer with respect to that is simple. We pray that we all would know, that we know that we know that eternal life is ours in Christ. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. Well, those of you who have been with us for some time will know this. Those who are newer in the room will not, and that's not your fault. Typically, what I do with introductions is I try to set the table for a conversation that we're going to have from God's Word. I aim to not assume interest, but kind of draw people in to God's Word. And in spite of all of my better instincts, I'm not going to do that today. So I am just trying to keep you all on your toes, and I'm going to ask you to go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 John. So I'm assuming some interest in that you came here on purpose this morning, and now we are going to look to God's Word. The letter of 1 John is near the very end of the New Testament, so it's near the very back of your Bible. The only books after it are Revelation, Jude, 3 John, and 2 John. So we are near the end in terms of the order of the canon, the order of Scripture. Given that this is our first sermon of 14 that we're going to be um, making our way through in 1 John, this, of course, will come as no shock to you that a lot of what I'm going to do today, I will deal with the first four verses of John, 1 John 1, excuse me, but we'll be doing some background information, some context, some situational stuff, and then I'm going to spend a decent amount of the time today, too, trying to articulate what I understand from the letter to be the main point of the letter. So what is the point of 1 John will be a lot of what we consider together today, and it will serve us well for the next 13 weeks or so. So this sermon has three parts. I'll go ahead and give you a, a feel for how we're going to approach this. I know that you already have your Bibles open. That will serve you well in just a moment. First, we're going to consider some background together, some situational context stuff of the letter, because that matters. Then we will deal with the text itself, 1 John 1, 1 through 4. We'll look at those verses. Uh, not a very sophisticated outline that I have, but we'll walk our way through them. 
And then lastly, we will consider together, what is John's goal in writing this letter? What's he doing? What's the emphasis? So that's the plan. So let's begin our time considering the background of this letter, the situation of the letter. As you know, God has revealed all of his word through human beings, through human agency. God inspired the scripture. We understand that real human beings in time and space wrote these 66 books that comprise our Bible, and they were inspired by God to do it. So that means that these letters in particular of the New Testament, the epistles as they're called, are written into a particular context and a particular situation. And if we divorce the letters from those contexts, from those situations, we are prone to do bad things with them. So it matters very much that we would understand some of this, the situation that gave rise to this letter from the Apostle John to the church. The author, as you might surmise already, is the Apostle John. So this is not John the Baptist, but the Apostle John, one of the 12 disciples who spent time with Jesus for three years, witnessed his death, also saw him after his resurrection, and also is the author of the Gospel of John, as well as the letters of 2nd and 3rd John. He is the author. The situation, if I were to summarize it simply, is that John is writing to a church that is being bombarded by two things. It is under siege from two things. One, false teaching. He's writing to a church that is being bombarded by false teaching first, and secondly, by apostasy, by people who are denying the faith and are leaving the church. So those things are absolutely critical that we keep those in view. Those lenses need to be on as we look at this letter. For example, in verse 26 of chapter 2, John says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. They're teaching you false doctrine. In verse 19 of that same chapter, he begins that sentence about talking about they went out from us because they were not of us. He's talking about people who are leaving the church. They are apostate in that sense, denying the faith, but also abandoning the saints that John is writing to. So we're going to consider together a little bit of what this false teaching was so that we have a good handle on that. A couple of different streams of false teaching were going on in this in the church here that John is addressing. The first is what we might call an early form of Gnosticism. So for those in the room who are familiar with that, that's wonderful. If you've never heard of Gnosticism in your life, you've come to a good place this morning. So that Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, meaning knowledge. And it was a broad category of sort of philosophical false teaching that permeated the church in a full-blown way in the second century. So in the first century context of the letter of 1 John, we're dealing with a kind of proto-Gnosticism, the kind of beginnings of this sort of merger and synthesis between Greek philosophy and Christian doctrine. So for our purposes, let's just consider some general characteristics of Gnostic thought so that we have those kind of in our backpack as we look at the letter together. Gnostic thought, that's spelled G-N-O-S-T-I-C, silent G. Gnostic thought would have been characterized by Platonic dualism, so the philosopher Plato, if many are familiar with that name in the room. Plato taught that there are essentially two kinds of things in the universe. There are two planes on which everything exists. There is a spiritual plane, and then there is a material, physical plane. And in philosophy, specifically in the tradition of 
Plato and Platonic thought, Platonist thought. The general easy way to say this is that spiritual things were thought of as inherently good. They were higher than. And physical things were thought of as inherently wicked. So spiritual things are good. Physical things are lesser good. They are prone toward wickedness and evil. There was an emphasis in Gnostic thought on knowledge that shouldn't surprise you given the name of the philosophy. But it was knowledge achieved through a kind of mystical or spiritual sense of enlightenment. In Gnostic thought, redemption would have come through inner knowledge. It would come through that kind of enlightenment. Whereas the Christian doctrine of redemption is that redemption came through the incarnation of God the Son. His perfect life, his death on the cross to pay the penalty of sin, and then also his resurrection over the grave. Gnosticism would have said something quite different. Redemption comes through inner enlightenment, not any kind of incarnate thing. That would be wrong. Gnostic thought teaches that there is one true deity, one true God. He is spiritual and has no dealings with anything physical. Underneath the one true God, there are a number of other gods. They would have been called demiurges in the context of, of John's letter. Even now, and people would talk about it, demiurges, these gods underneath the one true God. One of these pantheon of gods would have been the God of creation, the God of old, the Old Testament. One of the other gods amongst this, amongst this pantheon, excuse me, would have been the God of redemption. That would be Jesus. And so the God of redemption comes essentially to help set people free from bodily imprisonment. So in one sense, it almost pits. It's an interesting philosophy. It almost pits the God of the Old Testament and Jesus against each other. The God of the Old Testament is this kind of malevolent deity who created physicality and everybody is in bondage to physical nature. And now the God of redemption, Jesus comes in to set people free from bodily captivity. Now, there are all kinds of problems with this biblically, right? I hope that you're squirming in your seat as you think about the problems that there are with this kind of thinking. As I've already said, it pits Jesus against the God of the Old Testament. It certainly would not see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, but rather its antithesis. It's just all kinds of out of whack. There's not time for me to talk today, though. Like, even as I said some of what I said a moment ago about how Jesus came to set us free from captivity to this kind of prison that I'm in right now in my body, there's not time today to talk about how much Gnostic thinking exists in the American church. There's a lot. Think about these songs, you know, I'll fly away, all these kinds of things, where it's like the goal is to be set free from this body of death. That's not the Christian message whatsoever. God created us physical and spiritual in a union of body and soul, the psychosomatic union, the material and immaterial part of us. And he means to redeem it all. And he sent his son, God incarnate, right? God the son took on flesh in order to redeem all of us, our entire humanity. We can think more about this as we make our way through the letter. Even the emphasis in the American church on the subjective internal spiritual stuff over and against the objective external realities is indicative of this kind of thinking. The other stream of false teaching, though, that was going on in the church context of 1 John was something that we would call docetism. And again, these are big words. This is not a seminary class. I mean for this to be a sermon, and so just bear with me. 
Docetism comes from the Greek word dokeo, meaning to think or to seem. And so docetism taught in the early church that Jesus only seemed or appeared to be physical. He was not really a physical being. He was a spiritual being who appeared to be physical, but he did not really take on a human body. He really did not take on a human nature. He did not really live and then therefore really die. He only appeared to be human. So you may be sitting there. I, I trust some of the things are clear to you, but you might be asking the question, okay, brother, like what's the big deal about some of these false teachings? A couple of things. First, both of these streams of false teaching, Gnosticism and Docetism, are a denial of Christ's true humanity. If Jesus isn't truly human, we've got serious problems. I mean, first of all, it doesn't square with the biblical witness. But even just theologically, there are all kinds of issues. If Jesus is not truly human, he cannot be the representative of humanity. How could he stand in our place if he's not human? He could not be. We rejoice all the time here at CDC about how Jesus is the second and greater Adam, fulfilling God's law perfectly where Adam fell, providing righteousness for us in our place, atoning for our sin in our place, triumphing over the grave over sin and over Satan in our place so that through faith in him, we might be counted righteous and we might one day be raised from the dead to live with God forever in a sinless, wonderful existence in the new heavens and the new earth. That is the Christian message. It's the message of the scripture. But if Jesus is not truly human, he cannot accomplish our redemption. He can't die for us. He can't atone for sin. He cannot redeem what he does not take on in terms of our nature. He cannot be our resurrection because he wasn't truly human in order to die in the first place. And so his resurrection becomes figurative or metaphorical at best. If Jesus is not truly human, we are still dead in our sins and we are hopeless before God. But the second big issue with these false teachings matters a lot for this letter as well. With respect to docetism and especially Gnosticism, there was an obsession and an emphasis of the spiritual things over the physical things to the extent that what was done in the body was of no consequence. Let me unpack that for just a second. So if only the spiritual things really matter, And this kind of lower nature, this carnal part of us, is just sort of irrelevant. Then the sins that I commit in my body don't mean anything. They are of zero relevance for me in my being. This would have confused believers and John's readers on a couple of levels, right? This kind of thinking is existing in the church. Well, one would have just been the licentiousness and the lawlessness that would have been everywhere. Like, if you really believe that the sins that I commit in my body have zero significance whatsoever, all that matters is something happening on a spiritual plane. Lawlessness is a logical result. Licentious living 
is a logical fallout of that. But then secondly, and this also matters a lot for, for the letter, the Gnostic thinkers would have not understood themselves to be battling or struggling against sin in any significant way at all. So if, again, if sin is irrelevant, if sin is immaterial, if sin matters not, I don't understand myself to be fighting it. I don't understand myself to be battling against it, right? And so imagine a conversation between a person that's thinking in this Gnostic kind of way and then a true believer who is keenly aware of his or her sin is pursuing righteousness and also is struggling underneath the weight of sin. The individual from the Gnostic perspective would probably just say, well, you know, friend, you're, you're struggling like you are against sin. The only reason you're doing that is because you just have not been enlightened. If you were only enlightened, you would understand that there is really no battle to fight. That sin is not a big deal. The only thing that matters is spiritual stuff. Your problem, friend, is that you've just yet to arrive. And when you get it, you'll understand that the way that we're living is the way we should be living. So in the context, friends, hear me say this. In the context of this letter, John's readers are the ones who were pursuing a righteous life. The ones who were not pursuing a righteous life were the false teachers and then the apostates who were leaving the church. So that brings us to the last matter of just this background material. We thought about the false teaching, Gnosticism, Docetism. But now let's think briefly about apostasy, about the fact that people were leaving the church and deserting the believers to whom John is writing. So John says, of these individuals who are abandoning the church and abandoning the saints, the readers of John's letter, he says that they went out from us because they were not really of us. He says that they are seeking to deceive you. They don't have sound doctrine. They don't love the brothers. They don't practice righteousness. They don't keep God's commandments. They don't walk in the light. And when they sin, they don't call it sin. Sound familiar, right? If we say we have no sin, we don't know God. They don't call it sin. When they sin, they don't confess it. They don't have God's spirit because they don't confess that Jesus has come in the flesh. He wasn't really human. They are not of God and they have the spirit of Antichrist because they say that Jesus did not come in the flesh. John's emphasis, and I'm going to unpack this more today and throughout this letter, of course. John's emphasis is to point out that the apostates, the deserters, are not the real thing. These people who are bouncing from the church, like deuces, baby, we're out of here. They are the ones who are not real. And thereby he aims to comfort his readers that they, in fact, are the real thing. So that brings us to the second portion of our time together this morning where I want us to consider specifically verses 1 through 4 of 1 John 1. I'm going to read the text for us now. This is the word of God. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it 
and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Amen. Well, friends, when we look to this text, when you see the phrase, word of life, or you see the word life, or you see eternal life, or the reference, that which was from the beginning, all of those things are referring to Jesus, specifically to him, his person and his work, certainly. But it's not even so much when you hear that, the word of, the word of, the word of. Yes, the message matters and the message is involved, but it is referring specifically, John is, to Jesus himself. So let's just look at some of the things that John says about Jesus. This, again, is so similar to what he says in his gospel. And we'll think about that in just a moment. That which was from the beginning. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about God the Son who has always existed, who never got started. So in terms of the preciseness of language, I'll break it down this way. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God the Son has always existed, along with the Father and the Spirit. He never started. Like if you ask where did he come from, he didn't come from anywhere. He's there. It'll blow your mind, right? But then in time and space, God the Son took on human flesh in history. And at that point became Jesus of Nazareth. And he is Jesus still, God the Son incarnate. We understand that he had two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, united in one person, but without, like we confessed earlier, without blending, without mixing, right? Two distinct natures, one person, truly man, truly God, Jesus. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, the apostles have heard the message that Christ proclaimed. They have also heard, no doubt in their lives, they would have heard the Old Testament scriptures that pointed to the arrival of Messiah. But in particular, John is talking about the message that they would, as apostles, have heard from Christ himself, which would have included what we have recorded for us in the Gospels, but even more than that, actually. Because you think about the summary statements that are made, like in Luke 24, when Jesus opens up for the apostles all of the scripture and teaches them everything that the scripture says about him. That's a summary statement, right? That contains within it like just boatloads of things that matter that aren't recorded for us, but we have been able through time as we study scripture to learn all of that. It's one of the reasons why there are books in scripture after the gospel accounts, right? so that we can understand Jesus' coming and we can understand how he is the fulfillment of all things that the Old Covenant reveals and how he is the redeemer of mankind. John and the apostles, put your eyes back on verse 1, which we have seen with our own eyes, right? We have seen him. So again, he's a man, like he really is human. We saw him with our eyes, which we looked upon, and we have touched with our hands. He's material. He's no ghost. He's no spiritual manifestation that just seemed to be human. He's human. We've seen him. He was from the beginning. He's God. We touched him and we saw him. He's man. Putting our eyes back on the text. 
concerning the word of life. Well, that word of life is Jesus himself, right? And the message about him. Putting our eyes now on verse two, the eternal divine word of God, right? The son of God, who is life, was made manifest. He came and manifested himself among us. This sounds like John 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He manifested himself. John and the apostles have seen it. You see this. Verse two, we have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you eternal life. We proclaim to you specifically the eternal life that was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Jesus, so it's right to say that Jesus equals eternal life. He is the one through whom eternal life comes. He is the provider of it, just like John's gospel. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. He is the life giver. God the Son, the Word, was with the Father. And he was made manifest to John and the apostles. Consider John's gospel for just a moment. We have a little bit already. We read it earlier in our service. In the beginning was the Word. right? The Word, the Logos of God, the Son of God. God. The Word was with God and the Word was God. These are building blocks of the doctrine of the Trinity. So the Logos, the Son, was with God, meaning there's a distinction. He also is God, same essence, same nature, right? He was in the beginning with God. He wasn't created. As John says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. God the Son is not in the made category. There have been false teachings through the history of the church that will say that Jesus was the first and greatest creation of God. Not so. He was with God. He was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You have made things, and you have the maker, and Jesus is the maker, not the made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He was the true light that was coming into the world. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He manifested himself, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the only God who is at the Father's side. Again, a distinction, right? He is the only God, and he's at the Father's side. Both of them are God. And though no one has ever seen God, he, Jesus, the word made flesh, has made him known. That's what John says in his gospel, in the prologue there. Very similar to what he's saying in the prologue here. So John and the apostles proclaim what they have seen and what they have heard, what they have touched, what they know, so that John's readers might have fellowship with them in God, in the Father and in the Son. That's one of his aims, right? The fellowship is with the Father and the Son, and it results, as you see in verse four, in complete joy. Some manuscripts say that our joy may be complete. Other manuscripts say that your joy may be complete. It really doesn't matter. It's complete joy, right? In that you will be joyful in having this fellowship with us and with God, and we too will rejoice at the fact that you have fellowship with us and with the Father and with the Son. 
So friends, even in these verses, I think it's pretty clear just as a tone set that the emphasis of John here is to confirm the validity and the truth of the gospel. He's confirming the validity and the veracity, right? The truthfulness of the gospel message concerning the Christ. There's false teaching going on about the nature of Jesus, about who he is, about what he came to do. And John aims to set the record straight. He points to the certainty of the testimony of the apostles, right? He talks about the fact that we've heard this. We've seen this. We've touched this. Jesus has, in fact, come in the flesh, and he came to save us and bring us into fellowship with himself and with his Father. And you can know that that message is true. In other words, there is no reason to doubt. You're being riddled with all kinds of things. False teaching, you've got people leaving you. You are no doubt unsettled. I'm writing this to comfort you. I'm writing this to settle you. The gospel that you have heard from us is legit. Jesus is legit. He is the God-man and the only Savior of the human race. Friends, I want to move on now to consider John's objective and purpose in writing the letter. I've already kind of alluded to it a little bit. I mean, even in thinking about these verses, it's inevitable to not talk about it. It's clear. He's aiming to strengthen, to comfort the people that are reading this letter. He wants them to be grounded in the gospel that they have trusted more than anything. He wants them to be confident as they look to Christ, knowing that he is the real thing. And he wants them to know that they, in their understanding, but also in their living, that they are, in fact, the real thing. So as we go through this time together, I don't know how many of you have ever heard teaching on 1 John. Many in the room may have heard teaching on 1 John. Some, maybe not. Some are like, look, Brad, I've never really heard teaching on the Bible, period. That's great. I'm glad you're here. It really doesn't matter a lot. I don't know what you've been exposed to, and I'm not going to make a bunch of assumptions. But there are some ways that 1 John is presented in our current context that I think are not actually faithful to the main thrust of the letter. And I will aim to be clear about some of those things and also charitable at the same time. Right? So in our context, like in the American church, the Western church, 1 John is often presented as a series of tests, right? a series of tests aimed at like nominally minded people. It's almost like the letter is written primarily to nominal Christians, right? Christians who are that in name only, right? They're empty professors. And that assumption that that's the target audience produces a kind of tone and an emphasis that is off-center. The assumption often in the teaching of 1 John is that these nominally-minded people probably do not have enough evidence of the things considered, like love for the brothers or the practicing of righteousness or whatever. And that lack needs to be exposed, right? They don't have enough love for the brothers, enough righteousness. Their doctrine is not quite right, etc. 
and they therefore have no basis for assurance, they should be worried and that needs to be exposed. That can be at least some of the thrust of the way this letter is taught. Sometimes this letter is taught as though John's primary aim is to give what you might call like a litmus test for salvation. So take the tests, depending on what the pH is, right? Depending on what the color is. You know, we can distinguish between people who are saved and unsaved. And I use that word primary on purpose. Like when the letter is taught as though that is the primary purpose, the litmus test. That's the problem. So I'm not going to bury the lead, okay? I'm just going to lay my cards out on the table. So I think that that sort of litmus test approach and the approach aimed at the nominal Christian, I think that that is a secondary application of the letter that's legitimate. It's a secondary application of the letter that's legitimate. Hear me say that. It's legitimate, right? But I think we would all agree to preach a secondary application of the epistle as though it's the main point of the epistle is to at best obscure what the letter is about. Does that make sense? So I have two disclaimers. And I want you, if you if you write things down, I want you to write these down. So I don't want to be misunderstood, okay? You guys know, like, I want to be careful. I love you. I care about our church and what the Lord is doing here. I aim always, as every brother does, whoever gets up here, to divide God's word rightly by the power of his spirit. I don't want to be misunderstood. Disclaimer number one. I'm going to repeat this sentence at least twice. There have to be evidences of salvation in a person's life for there to be salvation. Repeat that again. There have to be evidences of salvation in a person's life for there to be salvation. Everybody got that? Cool. However, those evidences, right, they can vary with the day. You know that, I know that. Evidences of salvation, we might call this fruit of salvation, even fruit of the Spirit, right? They are, I would say, almost impossible to quantify. We are obsessed in our church context with being able to measure everything. We gotta quantify everything. And when we try to quantify and like gradate, you know, the fruit of the Spirit and fruit of salvation, we harm each other. The way that I would put it about like these evidences of salvation, the fruit of the Spirit, evidence of the new birth that's real and necessary, it's almost impossible to quantify, but you know it when you see it. You, you can't really measure it, but you know it when you see it. You live life together in a church context, right? You're a part of a body. You're a part of group things together. You get to know people. And then suddenly like you, it strikes you one day when you're spending time with a person individually or in a group, you see something and you're like that, that, that's love right there. That is self-control. That's patience. That's gentleness, man. Like something's happening there. That's fruit. That's how this happens. So disclaimer one, there have to be evidences of salvation in a person's life for there to be salvation, though those evidences may go up and down. Disclaimer number two, I'm going to repeat this 
at least twice also. We should take very seriously, and I have very all caps in my notes, we should take very seriously every one of the evidences or the tests that is laid out in 1 John. We should take very seriously every single one of the tests and the evidences that are laid out in 1 John. Some people will give you kind of a three-test framework, right? Kind of like a, a social, a moral, a doctrinal test. Others will have as many as seven up to ten very specific kinds of tests, you know, to determine the genuineness of, of a person's faith. Like, are you the real thing or not? John, again, is describing what the real thing looks like in his letter. That's what he's doing. And, of course, we can look at that and say, do these things characterize us? We should take that deadly seriously. If we do not take it seriously, that's a problem. Amen, somebody. Right? But here's the thing. This is my posture, okay, as a pastor, wholesale. My posture is that the people that comprise this body are born again. You're regenerate. Now, you'll struggle with sin just like I do. But you have the Spirit of God in you. And therefore, I assume, I shouldn't say assume, I trust, I trust that born-again people will take evidences and tests seriously. You won't just, oh, it doesn't matter. That's not the posture of the believer. So I don't feel as though I need to berate you and lambast you and light a fire under you necessarily to get you to take this seriously. I trust you will. This is just kind of my truth and advertising moment in terms of my posture in approaching this letter. So I, like John does, will exhort us, will encourage us, will challenge us. And I will do that by pointing us, I mean, as we're doing that, I'll be pointing us to Christ because John does that in this letter. And as we're doing that, I'll be pushing us to rely upon the Holy Spirit is what John also does in this letter. The new birth is essential, right, in terms of all of this conversation, and you can't reverse engineer the new birth. It just doesn't work that way. All right, so let me say this now. Again, what's the main point of John's letter? I'm sort of giving you a lot right now. I hope it's making sense. I'm going to frame this another way. This epistle, this letter, is often preached, and it's often used, maybe not intentionally, but almost indirectly this happens because of the tone in which it's preached. It often becomes a means of eroding the assurance of the nominal Christian rather than a means of protecting the redeemed and a means of strengthening the assurance of the redeemed. So let me say that again. This letter often becomes a means of eroding the assurance of the nominal rather than strengthening the assurance of the redeemed. It's used to erode the assurance of the nominal, not protect the redeemed, which is what I think John's aim is. John's aim is the latter, not the former. His aim is to strengthen the assurance of the regenerate, and his aim is to protect the saints from false teaching and from apostasy. That's the point. As one brother has observed, John, in writing this letter, he, he is not in angry prophet mode. That's not his tone, right? He is more, what I would say maybe, he's more in like a protective big brother mode, right? 
the church, this is big. So like if you're, if you're taking notes, just try to summarize these things in your notes because this is going to serve us for this whole series. As I read the letter, I would encourage every one of you to do this. Go home this afternoon or sometime this week. Find the time to sit down with your Bible and just read this letter. It's not that long. Read it from start to finish and just take it on its face, right? The church he is writing to does not seem to be comprised of what I would call nominal people who need to be scared straight. The church he's writing to is a church comprised of real believers who are under attack from false teachers and from apostates. And these real believers need to be assured. Another way I might put this is that John, far from offering evidences against the assurance of his readers, is actually offering evidences for it. Let me say that again. Rather than offering evidences against the assurance of his readers, he is offering evidences for their assurance. You see the difference? He is seeking to comfort them, not produce doubt in them. The presentation of of 1 John, as I've said before, it, it can often come across a couple of ways. And I trust, I trust motivations are really good, and I'm not impugning anyone's motivations in this at all. <clears throat> and I know that there have been plenty of sermons, I'm confident, that have come across in a way that are different than what I would have wanted them to, right? A couple of things here, and I'm going to say some stuff. I'm going to give some more sort of categories of, of theology, and I'm not going to take the time to explain everything. I'll be at the door after the service. And I will, I will answer your question. You're like, brother, what did you mean by that? I will happily talk to you. I'm just going to kind of lay this out. Okay. John gives us, you know, one perspective, one kind of way this, this letter comes across is that John gives us this you know, litmus test for salvation. And if you score highly on the test, you have good reason or good basis for assurance. If you score poorly, then you really don't have a basis for assurance. But as I've already noted, the problem with that is that those evidences can vary by the hour, right? Those evidences can vary by the day. I mean, I'm not trying to be like ridiculously punchy, but my gosh, if Paul like were to take the litmus test, the day he wrote Romans 7, right, I mean, he would not score very highly, right? Because he's I, I don't do the things that I know I should do. I do the things I don't want to do. Wretched man that I am, who's going to save me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when it comes across, like you better, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. You better inspect the fruit, man, you know, to make sure that it's there. I'm not saying, listen, you, you heard me earlier. There need to be evidences. But when it comes across as this, look to your fruit. Look at your life for the ground of your assurance. Nobody has it. Nobody has it. It's good to examine our lives. God's word exposes what's wrong in us. It exposes what we lack. And that drives us. First thing it should ever do is drive you to Christ. The only one who is righteous, the only human who ever fulfilled God's law perfectly, the only one who could ever die for sinners, right? We trust Christ. A second way that this 
can kind of come across, like implicit sort of collateral damage effects, right? It comes across this way. In order to be assured of your justification, justification meaning you're standing before God, you've been declared righteous in Christ, you've been justified. In order to be assured of your justification, you must achieve a certain level of sanctification. Right? That's kind of how this comes across. Like you need to achieve a certain level of sanctification, be growth in holiness, right, in order to be confident that your justification is legitimate. And then if you have not achieved that level of sanctification in loving the brothers, in practicing righteousness, etc., if you have not done it adequately, you should be worried. So in that kind of economy, friends, do you see what the driver is? The driver is fear. The driver is dread, right? The driver is worry, angst. God is judge, not father, in that economy. This understanding, I, I want to be careful that I don't say these things too, like, passionately. That kind of understanding is contra-gospel. It is contra good news. It is also, and these are where I'm going to say some things that I will try to explain briefly but not fully. That kind of thinking, you need to achieve a certain level of sanctification to know that your justification is real. That is Roman. It's Roman Catholic, right? Cooperate with the grace of God so that you will be sanctified enough that you would be the kind of person that God would happily save, right? It is also Pelagian. It's false teaching. It's a teaching that we, in and of ourselves, basically can redeem ourselves, but we have the power, apart from God's grace, to make ourselves better. This is the methodology and the philosophy of many of the awakenings and revivals that have happened in this country. This is on my radar screen all the time, right? This kind of Pelagian root that exists underneath so much. Like you just need to make a decision. You need to get your act together. You need to morally reform yourself, right? Now, moral transformation and trans like transformation of life is real and it is the work of the Holy Spirit, right? Now, this kind of presentation too, sanctify your sanctification needs to reach a certain level so that you can know that you're justified. It stands over and against the biblical presentation. What's the biblical presentation? It goes something like this. You are justified. Full stop. You are counted righteous in Christ. Bank your life on it. And from that assurance, from that justification, out of that flows your sanctification. You are justified and you are being sanctified. And God will see to it. Yes, you will work. And you will work because it is God who works in you to both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's Bible, right? You are justified and you are being changed. You are good with God through faith in Christ alone by the grace of God apart from any work that you could ever do and from that flows your sanctification. What's the driver there? If in the other economy, the drivers are worry and fear and dread, in this biblical presentation, the drivers, the motivators are love and joy and gratitude to God for what he's done. 
that kind of gospel, biblical understanding produces worshipers. It doesn't produce lawless people. The biblical understanding, friends, if the other one is Roman and Pelagian, the biblical understanding is Protestant, and dare I say it, the biblical understanding is Reformed. I don't use that word much, but it's what this is. So, in kind of landing this plane, the issue, as I see it, brothers and sisters, is when we come to this letter, it's an issue of emphasis and tone. It's an issue of emphasis and tone. John, when you read this letter, I think you will be struck by how tender and by how pastoral and by how reassuring he is in the way that it's written. This is why I trust. I've, heard, I've had several people come up to me since the preaching calendar for this quarter came out, and they're like, now I cannot wait for First John. I'm assuming that that's your perspective on the letter, that John is reassuring and pastoral and tender, right? Listen, to, I'm just going to read excerpts from the letter. I'm not going to cite them because that would just take time. It might confuse you. Just listen, and you can read it for yourself later, maybe this week. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Thank God for him, right? He is the propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction. He has satisfied the wrath of God in the place of sinners. Let's move on, right? I am writing to you, little children, term of endearment, Right? Because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. These aren't, these aren't nominal people, right? I mean, holy smokes. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Oh, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. We move forward. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. That's helpful, right? We're not waiting on the Antichrist to come. Like there are types of him all over the place, right? Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, right? These people who are leaving you. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth, right? You know what's up. We move on. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Amen, right? The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. You want to know why life is hard in this fallen world? It hates you. It hated Christ, right? Beloved, we are God's children now. We are God's children now. I mean, okay, here we go. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, Christ, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's a great hope. We move on. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, 
God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So when your conscience is wrecked by the fact that you're sinning, this, God is greater than your conscience, right? God is greater than your heart. He says, righteous in Jesus Christ. We move forward. Little children, again, endearment. You are from God and have overcome them, right? False teachers, apostates, the spirits of the world. For he who is in you, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We move forward. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, because we're not gonna do that perfectly, right? But that he loved us and sent his son again to be the propitiation for our sins. The propitiatory sacrifice of Christ is entered into this letter early and it shows up multiple times. Like John is pointing people to what Christ has done. We move forward. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, right? Fear is not the driver. We move forward. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. We'll stop we move on. We know that we are from God. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Amen. Now, I, the last verse I'm going to read for you, I will tell you what it is. It's chapter five and verse 13. This is widely considered, not just by me, to be a kind of purpose statement of sorts for the letter. Like in conclusion, here it is. Verse 13, chapter five, you can even flip there and look at it. I write these things to you who believe. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I'm writing to you believers so that you might know that eternal life is yours. I'm going to read you. Yeah, we're okay. By tracking, we're good. We're, we're almost done. You're most comfortable. And I trust this is edifying for us. I'm going to read John Calvin on chapter 5 and verse 13. Just as a quick aside, that, that name has a lot of connotations with it. Uh, when I read this paragraph, you might fall out of your seat if you think that this guy is just some cold-hearted, you know, intellectual jerk. Um, he was imperfect, certainly, but was very pastoral in time. Calvin writes on 1 John 5, 13. As there ought to be a daily progress in faith, so he says that he wrote to those who had already believed so that they might believe more firmly and with greater certainty and thus enjoy a fuller confidence as to eternal life. So he's writing for the assurance of Christians, right? Then the use of doctrine is, so Calvin's going to say, here's what doctrine should be used for. The use of doctrine is not only to initiate the ignorant into the knowledge of Christ, 
but also to confirm those more and more who have already been taught. For there are still in us many remnants of unbelief, and so weak is our faith that we need a fuller confirmation. It's true, right? But we ought to observe, this is, I love this right here, but we ought to observe the way in which faith is confirmed. How do you strengthen faith? By having the office and power of Christ explained to us. It is therefore the duty of a godly teacher in order to confirm disciples in the faith to extol as much as possible the grace of Christ so that being satisfied with that, we may seek nothing else, close quote. It's good stuff. Extol as much as possible the grace of Christ. Amen. He is our righteousness. He is our atonement. He is our resurrection and our life, right? He's our hope. He's the ground of our assurance so that we might know that we have eternal life. That's John's desire for his readers. That's my desire for CBC, right? We, I, I say we, I am a part of you, like it's us. It's my desire for us that we might know that we have eternal life as we make our way through this letter. So I look forward to it. I hope you do too. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are the one living and true and holy God. And it is astonishing that you have seen fit to save sinners like us. You are such a wonderful and good God that you not only save us, but you want us to know that we're saved. You want us to know that we are declared righteous in Christ and that it's finished. And you then are faithful to work in us by your spirit to change us. You are faithful to complete our sanctification in the return of Christ and then glorify us to be with you forever. And we praise you and we give you thanks for that. We pray that you would continue to minister to us by your spirit as we come to the Lord's table, that we would come as sinners who are turning from our sin and also our own goodness and who are casting ourselves wholly on the grace of Christ. We pray that you would use not only everything we've already done and maybe especially the preaching of your word, but also the Lord's table to sustain and strengthen our faith. So be with us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.